Hi, I'm Bob Ekblad. Welcome to my podcast, Disciple. Word, Spirit, Justice, Witness. I want to talk about the first miracle story after Jesus has ascended to heaven and the Holy Spirit's been poured out, which is a miracle story that is accomplished by two of Jesus's uh, primary disciples, Peter and John, and it takes place in Acts 3 at the beautiful gate. And um, in this miracle story, we have so many aspects of the Christian faith that are often separated from one another, appearing together. You know, we have a focus on ministry to the excluded, together with uh, the power of God being manifested through divine healing. You know, we have ministry of presence uh, together with sort of direct action of helping. You know, we have um, empowerment of someone who's on the outside, and we have uh, the bringing the excluded from the outside into the insider camp, you know, into the midst of the excluders. You know, we have prophetic exposure of injustices together with calls to repentance and conversion. And we have a call to mission, like recruiting people for mission outside of the, of the, of the bounds of the temple and of the, you know, the faith community. And we have persecution finally. And I just want to go through this um, account, and I've written about it extensively in a, in a book that I wrote called The Beautiful Gate, Enter Jesus's Global Liberation Movement. So um, just before the story in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the gathered believers. And that was manifesting with a tongue of fire that rested on each person and them speaking in different languages. So uh, they were empowered to bear witness and they were called to be witnesses. Jesus says, you know, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And uh, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost led to 3,000 people coming to believe. And um, in this story, though, 5,000 people come to believe in response to Peter's preaching. And um, But anyway, backing up, after uh, these 3,000, these original 3,000 people come to believe, there's a gathering of believers that is presented where you have sort of an idyllic uh, Christian community where people are eating together, fellowshipping, they're caring for people. And um, and then Peter and John are, you know, they're two of Jesus's primary disciples. They um, they are they're, they go out and we have them going out in pairs. Um, and and that sets us up for the, the beginning of this story. So um, Peter and John are traveling together from their gathered community in the temple on the way to participate in the afternoon prayers. And so let's read Acts 3, 1 to 2. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to sit down, sat down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. So if we look at the characters in these verses and who they were and what they were doing, we have Peter and John. And interestingly, they often appear together. They're um, right there at the beginning when Jesus calls the disciples um, in, a, in Luke chapter 5. And we're looking at Luke Acts as a two-part series written by the same author. So um, I'm going to be drawing from Luke quite a bit. 
Anyway, in Luke 5, we have that um, the, the encounter where Jesus, he's um, at the Sea of Galilee, and he he steps in one of the empty boats, and he asks one of the fishermen who are mending their nets on the side, which is Simon, Peter, to push out a little bit from the edge of the bank of the of the you know the shoreline so that he can preach and he's teaching the people and then he um, tells the people tells Peter uh, push out further and let down your nets for a catch and you know Simon says well you know look we fished all night we didn't catch anything and you know and then Jesus uh, but he does he says at your word I'll do it I mean Jesus was like a celebrity who'd shown up there he the, right before that he'd healed all kinds of people in Simon's mother-in-law's house you know, people who had all kinds of afflictions, uh, they came to him. And so, you know, he was probably the talk of the town. So here um, he's asking Peter to do something publicly in front of all the gathered people to go and to drop his nets, which, uh, you know, obviously would have created a huge amount of shame if he pulled up empty nets in front of the whole uh, community. But um, instead, they pull up just a huge catch. And um, and John is in one of the other boats. And uh you know, and they and and they bring. Uh, you know, Simon comes and falls before Jesus and says, "You know, go away. You know, go away from me. Uh, I'm a sinful man." And Jesus instead um, calls him and John and the others to follow him. And they leave their nets and everything, and they follow Jesus. So we have that's the first Peter and John story, and then we have many others. Like uh, just one, for example, would be, you know, when they go uh, on their way after they been in the Gerasene territory where they cast out the evil spirits into the pigs. You know, in Luke chapter 8, um, Jesus is uh, coming back to the other side and a synagogue official, Jairus, comes to him and says his daughter is on the, is needing, you know, is dying. And so Jesus goes on his way to the synagogue official's house and on the way there's a woman who has the, the blood flow, who touches him and and is healed and there's a beautiful encounter there. And then he ends up going into the the house of the, you know, of the of the synagogue official whose daughter has already died, and he brings in Peter, James, and John, and um, and he raises this girl uh, from the dead, and it's this amazing story, and there's several other stories where they're featured, okay, and so one of the things that's interesting about this story then is that. We have these two that are going, and this is very uh, reminiscent of the sending of the 70, where uh, Jesus in Luke chapter 10 sends out the 70 in pairs, right? And so we have Peter and John, they're a pair, and they're, and they're going um, out together, although they're not going out in mission, they're heading to the temple. It's at the hour of prayer, but there's something reminiscent, isn't there, of, of, of Jesus's uh you know, um, sending of the 70 in that they're going out in twos. And and then here um, they encounter this man who's been lame from his mother's womb, who was being carried along and whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, in order to beg of those who are entering the temple. So this was a man who was excluded from going inside the temple because of his infirmer, infirmity. He wouldn't have been allowed in. He would have been viewed as unclean. And also he's a person in need. And so he's begging alms. And that's a specific term for, you know, for uh, donations that uh, that the Torah 
was uh, asking or requiring uh, religious people to offer to the poor. And so he's doing a spiritual act in a way, but he's on the outside. Um, and interestingly, the word beautiful here, there's no no uh, historical evidence that there was ever a, a gate of the temple called beautiful. But um, this word beautiful, horaios, um, means timely. Um, and so it represents, um, you know, sort of the timely, the timely gate. It's the it's the, the timely in the sense that it's God's timing that happens here. And we're going to see what unfolds. So um, where do you encounter excluded people like this man who's lame from birth, who is being set down outside of a religious place, you know, who is visible as someone in need? You know, do you encounter people like that today? Um, you know, where are the religious places of our society? You know, we live in a sec increasingly secularized society. I mean, like, I think Costco is definitely sort of a religious place or, you know, any of our big, um, you know, supermarket chains, you know, Safeway, Walmart, um, you know, these are places where, uh, where people go uh, to, in a way, worship at, in, at the temples of materialism. And, um, you know, um, outside of banks, you know, um, we recently encountered a man outside of uh, People's Bank who we were able to pray with and had a beautiful encounter, you know, with him and, and were able to be ministered to by him as well. You know, um, he, he um, and so, you know, where would be places in your community where you might encounter people like this? And I think it's important for us to pay attention because um, here, this particular character actually incites uh, the first miracle. So um, let's read verse 3. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. So here, um, it's the man who is is the initiator of the encounter, isn't he? You know, we tend to think of Peter and John on mission. Of course, they're heading to the temple. So that's not really a missional um, destination, is it? It's more like uh, a place where they're going to worship. It's the hour of prayer. And um, at the hour of prayer where they would be praying to God, they're interrupted by somebody who takes the initiative in a way. He sees him. And this verb to see, horao, it is used in all kinds of places that show both um, physical and spiritual seeing that are kind of happening simultaneously. And like, for instance, when, um, you know, when the, in the angels come and the, the, all of the shepherds are out in pasturing their flocks at night and, uh, and, they, and they see the heavenly hosts, that's horao. And then um, there's an announcement that Jesus is born, you know, and he's in the manger. And so they say, let us go and see this thing. And that's the word horao, to see. And, and then they go and they see. Mary and Joseph, and they see the baby lying in a manger. And then they go and they say, let's go. And they tell everyone what they'd seen. And that, that, so that word, that verb is a highly charged word spiritually. And so here we're given um, sort of a clue to the, this man actually being the catalyst. And, you know, it's the hour of prayer. And what is this man doing? He's asking. And the verb in Greek, erotao, is a primary term for uh, within the language of prayer. So Jesus says, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find. And when two or three ask, uh, 
for anything in my name, I will give it to you. And that's that term. And so this is a man who's, is he praying? You know, he's spiritually seeing and he's asking. And that invites us to see him as more than just a beggar, as, as maybe someone, as not just maybe, he, he's someone who catalyzes this first um, miracle story. And I mentioned that this word alms, elemosine, is not just money. Um, it's more of a religious term meaning um, gift or help for the needy. Uh, and it's, uh, it comes from a word related to mercy as well. So um, let's read the next verse. So Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. So here we have um, an aspect of ministry, which I would call presence and personal connection or relationship. You know, the, um, the previous session, a section we were looking at focuses on encounter uh, between the exclusion, excluded and sort of the, the missionaries, I guess. And now we have um, presence and personal connection that Peter and John initiate by fixing uh, their gaze on him. Uh, Peter fixes his gaze on him and says, look at us. And that term, look at us, is the term blepo in Greek, which means actually looking in the natural, seeing in the natural. So like, look at us and which, you know, think about people who are begging, you know, they, um, or in this case, he, you know, he's asking. And when someone engages with that person and says, um, you know, and, and engages with them in a personal way, like, hey, look at us, that suggests uh, a desire to be, to have a face-to-face, -to, -face, to have a connection. So it's, it's very, it's very potentially dignifying, isn't it? And, um, this term fix his gaze on him is uh, is a term that's used to uh, to describe prophetic seeing. Atenizo. It, it means to fix one's eyes attentively. Um, and it involves prophetic seeing something that God is showing someone. You see that in um, Luke 4 verse 20 and Acts 1 verse 10 and there's other places. And, um, you know, I think of it at a time when I was um, in the jail years back and I bring this up now because uh, there was a witness to that miracle that I met up with in the jail after not having seen him since that happened but um, I was in the mental health part of the jail when um, we were just a small little group of people in uh, in this pod and uh, and I kind of found myself looking at this uh, sort of gang involved young guy who's it whose name was Isaac and I, um, I just found myself kind of staring at him. And then this thought came in, someone's been shot and is in pain still. And so I kind of looked towards him and I just said, has someone here been shot recently and you still have pain from just the gunshot wound? And the guy I was looking at, Isaac, looks up and says, yeah, that's me. And um, I said, okay, well... Um, Look, I don't know why I would be given that impression, but it could be that it's God who's, you know, just wanting to highlight you. And I, I'm wondering if maybe we're supposed to offer to pray for you. Would you like to receive prayer? And he said, well, I don't believe in God. And I said, well, I mean, that's okay. We can still pray for you if you'd let us pray. You know, God is a God who heals the sick. And we see that with Jesus in the gospel accounts, Jesus is God's son. And he comes to reveal God. And if you want, 
um, he was like, uh, and this other guy who was very uh, enthusiastic, he was, you know, really mentally uh, disabled guy. He jumps up and says, yes. And he runs over and he, and he says, let's do it. And I was like, uh, there was almost no way to not pray for the guy. And so he agreed and we prayed for his shoulder, like uh, the bullet had gone through his shoulder and broken his collarbone and had lodged in his neck and his left side was paralyzed. And we prayed for him and, you know, um, he was healed. Like all of the feeling came back in the, his left side. And I bring that up now because I, I was asked to visit a man in the jail and, you know, and I, I said, well, it's really nice to meet you. And he says, well, I, I've met you before. I was, I was right there in that, um, Bible study when, um, my friend Isaac was healed of that, um, you know, the effects of that gunshot wound that he had. And, you know, and I saw what happened to him and his, the change of his life afterwards. And, and so I thought, wow, that's amazing. So here I am, you know, years later, uh, you know, sort of pastoring and meeting a guy one-on-one who, you know, who was impacted by that. And so, you know, that's what this story is really about. It's about, um, you know, how through this sort of connection that is uh, initiated by this excluded man, at the outside edges of, you know, of a religious place, you know, um, where he initiates this relationship that now is followed up by Peter and John who were really on point, who are paying attention and who are in the flow and it's the hour of prayer and the man is praying because he's asking and, and he's, um, and these, and Peter is, you know, is, is in a beautiful alignment that I think this text inspires us to step into. So verse five, and he began to give them his attention. That is the man lame from birth begins to give his attention, expecting to receive something from them. So interestingly, um, I think our tendency is to assume that this guy is expecting to receive alms, you know, or we would think money from them. But the text doesn't say alms. It just, we have a movement from, you know, from alms to something. And I think um, our tendency is to is to read this from a prejudice perspective where we assume it's money or alms when, whereas the text itself maybe shows an evolution that that there's actually faith, which is another dimension of mission, you know, of, I mean, of the holism of the gospel is here we have faith being a birth in a way, don't we? Um, he's expecting to receive something other than you know, what he was asking for. And, um, and it's that expectation that really moves uh, the story forward. And, um, and then we have, um, you know, verse six, but Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold. Um, interestingly, um, this is probably the text that most aligns this um, story with Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sends out the 70. You know, he says, carry no money belt or bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. You know, this is uh, Luke 10, 4. And, um, and so Peter and John, they're not carrying any money. And, um, but what they're carrying is what they give. And what is it that they have? Um, what I do have, he says, I give to you. And then he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk or you walk, you know, it's an imperative of, uh, to walk, second person, singular imperative, walk. So 
what is that he has in in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene? Um, and here we have, um, you know, um, this word that is, um, you know, that's really counting on the name of Jesus, don't we? Um, it's really the name of Jesus that is um, now featured. And this is another huge, um, you know, emphasis that we have in the larger body of Christ, the name of Jesus. You know, think about uh, Russian Orthodox here, just Eastern Orthodox here, the early church fathers, the Jesus prayer, you know, the Jesus prayer, Jesus Christ, or uh, Jesus save us, or Jesus have mercy, or Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy upon us, a sinner. You know, here we have a whole theology of the name of Jesus, which is present in this text. And, and there's an emphasis on it, not just being in the name of Christ or in the name of my higher power, but it's really uh, in the name of Jesus and then his title, Christ or Messiah, and then where he's from, Nazareth. Okay, um, so there's a real emphasis on the specificity of the Jesus of history, but also uh, including the Jesus of faith because there's an embrace of his um, title and his identity as, as the Messiah of God. And in the name, in, um, you know, this can mean literally inside the name, or like the name is almost like a, like a zone, like it's like, a, you know, it's like being in this vehicle, this invisible vehicle that Peter and John are riding in, that's, that's the name of Jesus. It's, uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, the name is, is like almost um, the authority in, within which, um, you know, Peter and John are living their lives. And, um, you know, they're seated at the right hand of the Father. They know themselves to be uh, seated at the right hand of the Father where Jesus is seated. And they're, and they're speaking this out from that, you know, that place. And um, anyway, I love this. And, and so they, uh, and they tell the man, you walk, which really shows um, two things, right? It shows their own authority to speak in the name of Jesus, but it also shows their belief in this man that he is able to respond to their word. You know, think about Jesus when he says, um, and he said this in front of Peter and John and the other disciples so many times in the gospels, you know, um, take up your pallet and walk, you know, or go show yourselves to the priest. Um, Jesus uh, often engaged people's faith and um, and when they would go and they would uh, respond, it was like their healing would ensue. Um, so, um, so Peter gives an order and, um, you know, with, from this place of poverty. And I wonder what would it look like for us to go out without money or other resources? And uh, rather than just being focused on hosting people in our churches, which is uh, the dominant approach of Christianity today in the world, you know, where we host people and we, we're the ones that have the power. We have the resources. Um, we actually collect ourselves the resources, you know, at the offering. But, you know, we're usually moneyed. We have, um, you know, we have the pews, the, the space, the heated space, the worship band, you know, the sacraments, whatever it is, we, we create an environment of hospitality, which, which is great. It's, it's, it's important as well. It's an aspect of of you know being the body of Christ, but but here, um, at least in the gospel accounts, with like Luke nine and ten, and so many other places, in Jesus's own example, he's not ever really hosting people. 
you know, apart from when he's out in the, in the, in the wilderness and, and there's no food and the people are hungry, then he hosts people, but, but he actually takes what they have, the, the loaves and the fish. You know, he says, what do you have? And they find two, uh, you know, five loaves and two fish. And then he blesses that. And, and then he tells his disciples, you know, um, to give it out. Right. And it multiplies. And so maybe that would be an example of Jesus hosting, but it's, it's not, they're in the wilderness. They're not in a, in a building. Right. And, um, anyway, in this story, uh, I just love it that, um, that we're, we're modeling. I mean, Jesus is modeling something that, or Peter and John are modeling something that's really in alignment with Jesus. What would it look like for you to go out, um, with a, someone else like Peter and John, um, and with that kind of openness to an encounter to, you know, to someone else initiating maybe an encounter with you that wasn't overtly spiritual, but, you know, that would potentially be catalytic for you to engage with that person um, in an action that involved um, like something similar to this. Acts 3 verse 7, and seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. So here we have a number of things. We have um, we have this dimension of, of of hands on help. Okay, seizing him by the right hand. The dimension of um, authority by the right hand. You know that it's it's not like you have to be right handed to be involved in Jesus' healing ministry. The right hand is really symbolic of the the hand of God, where God exercises his power. It's by God's, God's right hand that he delivers the Israelites from Egypt. You know, it's, uh, you know, places like Psalm 110, you know, verse 1, that's where, you know, where it says, uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, right? Um, and so many other places like Jesus, who's uh, raised up and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and we're seated at the right hand. So the right hand represents our authority as being uh, sons and daughters of the Father who are seated at the right hand of the Father in Jesus, in, in that Jesus name zone. Um, and that word seizing is a word piazzo in, in Greek, which means like to arrest or to apprehend. It's a really strong term. So that shows the actual physicality of Peter, you know, just grabbing a hold of the guy, um, which someone who's so disempowered, who's who's been carried uh, by his friends, you know, to the temple gate on a regular basis is now being seized um, by the right hand and then raised up, which is the verb, same verb used for resurrection. And then it says um, immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. So there we have divine healing, don't we? In the midst of all, mixed, mix of, up of all of these different aspects, right? Of, uh, uh, this power of God that is manifested, right, um, in the absence of money, okay, power of God that empowers, um, you know, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. So the power of God that empowers, we have hands-on help, um, divine authority, you know, spiritual authority, and then um, healing, all that happening kind of simultaneously. But um, who strengthened this man's feet and ankles? It's interesting, isn't it, that it doesn't say, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened by Jesus or by P 
Peter and John or by the name of Jesus or by God. Um, this is an example of the divine passive where there's kind of an assumption that God is the one who did it, but that's not uh, stated. And so there's this incredible humility, um, but at the same time, sort of an absence of, um, you know, of a declaration of where, where witness is born to the agent who is the behind the scenes actor. And um, so when we look though um, at verse eight, you know, we see that that action uh, is manifested in the man himself engaging in all kinds of actions that were impossible before. With a leap, he stood upright and he began to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So interestingly, if you look at, if you count up all the actions, like Peter and John's actions um, versus the man lame from birth's actions, there's more um, actions on the part of the man lame from birth than anybody else in this story, which shows that actually this encounter was an empowering encounter to this person. And that they were, uh, they went from being sort of a, like a paralyzed outsider to, in this case, um, someone who is empowered and mobilized and comes across the gate, through the gate, into the inside. He enters the temple. So he goes from an outsider to an insider, you know, to paralyze, to walking, leaping, and praising God. Um, and, um, and it's that movement that is catalyzed by everything we've seen up to this point. So um, let's keep going in verse 9 to 11. Here we have what I would call inclusion and embrace, you know, which are other aspects of the, you know, of the, that are often emphasized by the larger body of Christ. Um, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. So here's this coming together of all the people around this guy who's, who's, who's attaching himself to Peter and John, who's clinging to them. And and there's this excitement and, and wonderment. And, um, and so then it, we, we see another really powerful action here, which I call deflecting credit. Um, verse 12, but when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, people of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety, we made him well? Or we made him walk, and um, you know that that would have, that would have been what people could have thought when they saw um, Peter reach, grabbing him by the right hand, uh, seizing him by the right hand, and raising him up, um, and then they're clinging to Peter and John in the temple, and so uh, this could have been the moment where Peter could have just uh, you know got his QR code out and said, "Okay, look, uh, this is our ministry, you know, beautiful gate." Um, you know, um, Tierra Nueva, you know, uh, whatever it might be, your church, um, you know, your ministry, uh, like you can donate online, you can donate, um, you know, through cash, you know, we'll take credit cards or checks, you know, whatever it is, right? But rather we have, um, you know, Peter 
challenging the people to not see the, them as the one who were the people of power for the hour, who because of some kind of superior righteousness, piety, or power, like they made him walk. Um, you know, we see this deflecting of credit is what I like to call this, which I think is what it means to bear witness. You know, we're, we're taking the attention away from ourselves and we're giving the glory to, um, to the one who is the author of life. And so let's see what happens, uh, what Peter says and how he preaches. And here we have proclamation, which is a major aspect of, um, you know, of the, what it means to bear witness and which is part of our, uh, the larger body of Christ's witness, which, you know, needs to be included as part of, uh, of what we do missionally. Um, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. See, there's the proclamation of the gospel. Um, and um, Jesus is the one who is going to be given the credit for this miracle. And But right away, we have uh, another aspect of mission, which is social prophetic critique or exposure of injustices, which follows just side to side, side by side, with this mentioning of, of, of the servant, uh, Jesus. Um, and by the way, the word servant there, pais, is the same term that's used in the Greek uh, version of Isaiah's servant poems. So here, you know, Peter is drawing from um, probably the, the most clearly stated, um, you know, sort of uh, statements of the Old Testament that describe uh, the suffering servant, the servant of the Lord as one who suffers in order to bring redemption, right? Isaiah 42, 49, 50, um, and 52, 13 to 53, 12. And so he's, you know, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus, the one, here it goes, the prophetic critique, the one whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate. Okay, like you guys are the perpetrators. Um, when Pilate had decided to release him, but you, denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. 